Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title is Have More Children. Yes, you heard that right. It's Have More Children. So we want to talk about things like many of you are maybe aware that Bill Gates has discussed how vaccines will reduce child mortality, which then will encourage people to have fewer children or things like Jane Goodall, who uh, wants the world population to be reduced to a half a billion. Uh, But the Bible, we know as Christians, says to be fruitful and multiply. So we want to talk about how to reconcile these competing views and to make sense of all of this. That's the subject for today. So Aaron, to get us started, maybe you could make our, our listeners aware, what are some of the cultural or religious and maybe even political messagings, messages that people are needing to be aware of when it comes to this conversation about overpopulation or depopulation narratives that we're seeing and hearing so much of? Sure. Well, I think there's several uh, overlapping and converging issues that are taking place, not just in Western culture, but in Eastern cultures as well. And uh, these are leading to, I think, a general disdain for larger families. It's almost like they're trying to guilt trip people and message to people that you should consider not having kids or having as few kids as possible, that somehow that's virtuous and that's valuable. Now, as you think about our entire culture, there's a whole plethora of issues that weigh into or affect or influence or impact this broader discussion about having uh, children. So our listeners will be you know, well aware that abortion is a pretty big deal in the, in the Western world and also in the, the Eastern world. For example, in the country of Canada, it's typical that abortions would range anywhere from 75,000 to 100,000 in any given year. And south of the border in the United States, because they have a larger population, roughly 10 times that of Canada, they would have around 600 to 630,000 abortions in every given year. So we live in a culture that does not consider the unborn to be a gift from God. And so millions of lives around the world are being snuffed out every year. So there's a general disdain for the unborn. They're not considered to be a blessing from God. They're not considered to be valuable or made in the Imago Dei, but they can be executed. They can be put to death because they're not convenient. And then we also have maids. So many of our Canadian listeners will know that about a year or so ago, our our government passed the MAID bill, the Medical Assistance in Dying bill. And the, the rhetoric surrounding that, if you remember, really was about informed consent, that if a person doesn't want to live and they have a debilitating disease, then they should be able to make a choice to take their own lives and be assisted by the medical establishment to do that. Well, isn't it interesting where that's led? Just this week in the National Post, which is a big newspaper in Canada, it was reported that physicians are advocating for euthanizing babies that are already born. If they have medical issues, if, they're, if they have some physical challenges, whatever happened to informed consent, that's a decision that cannot be made by an infant. That's a decision that's going to be made by doctors or the parents. So that's, that's flat out murder. It's, it's not about the, the child's like, hey, who raises this little pinky in the air and says, I don't want to live. 
that's not acceptable either. But this is this is choosing to execute the undesirables mm-hmm. in our population. This is a, a crazy thought. This is what ancient pagan cultures did when they would offer their babies on the on the altar to Moloch or Shemosh or other pagan gods, or when uh, they would take their children who are born with deformities or ailments and leave them out in the woods at night to the wolves to be exposed. This is what barbarian cultures do, but in our sophisticated Western culture, somehow we're starting to justify the idea that a sickly baby should be executed by the quote-unquote physicians that are supposed to be saving life. That's a huge issue. And then, of course, we know there's a uh, a, a radical increase in the emphasis on gay, ma- gay quote unquote marriage. It's not real marriage; it's fake marriage. But gay marriage, and of course, two men or two women that are married cannot physically have children. So that is a blessing in some respects, because frankly, we don't want gay couples to be raising children because they're going to influence them with all sorts of poisonous ideologies. But if you think of it just from a population perspective, if you take out of the population eligible people that would normally in history be in heterosexual relationships and therefore bearing children and you toss them into gay relationships, you're going to have obviously um, a decrease in reproductive capacity among the uh, you know the reproductive age of a culture. Again, I- I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing from a strategic perspective because I don't want... Uh, people that are practicing aberrant sexual relationships through raising kids. And if they are, of course, they have to rely upon heterosexual couples in order to you know, get them in vitro or adopt or foster, whatever it might be. But that's another factor. There's an increase in same-sex, quote-unquote, marriages uh, in, a, in, the, in our culture. And then, of course, we're all starting to see the, the overpopulation rhetoric, which is leading to the depopulation rhetoric. It's completely false. The world is not overpopulated. We've discussed this in previous Mm -hmm. podcasts. You can do the math on your own, jump on the internet, look at a couple sources that identifies arable land, what land is farmable, what land is livable, you know, run the numbers, do some calculations as to how much land you need in a given area for civil infrastructure and then divide it out. And you have acres and acres and acres left over for every um, family on the planet. So it's, it's completely false. We've discussed this in uh, other podcasts. The problem, by the way, is that there is a perceived overpopulation issue, and there's some truth to it because since the Industrial Revolution, when people came into rural areas and decided to all pack themselves like sardines in some of the world's largest cities, obviously you can't you can't pack an endless number of people into the same acreage and expect that to be a healthy environment. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a problem with certain areas that are overpopulated and and the, the solution to that is not to have fewer kids, but move out of the big cities or start new cities or spread out a little bit. If you put the population of Canada inside the city of Beijing in China, you're obviously gonna have uh, issues with with sewage and infrastructure and viral spread and these sorts of things, but that that's a that's an issue with civil infrastructure and people's habits and the way people live, their lifestyles more than an actual uh, population issue. We also have seen in the last uh, 100, 120 years or so a delayed 
uh, interest in having children. So from the 1900s, the early 1900s to our decade, the 2020s, the age for first-time moms has risen by almost four years. Hmm. So around the turn of the 19th century, or I guess that would be the 20th century in the early 1900s, you would expect the average woman to start having kids around the age of 22. That's increased to 26, which automatically triggers the potential for greater fertility issues and just less time to be able to produce uh, larger families. Family sizes have dropped. Now, it's interesting. I looked into this a little bit. They actually dropped more in the 1800s than they did in the 1900s. But if you go back, let's say 200 years, the average woman in the West would have around seven, seven and a half children. So that's average. Nobody has a half a child. But you'd have about seven, seven and a half children. And now that number has dropped to below two. So in 200 years, let's just take a round number. Let's round it to seven and two. You've gone from an average, average of seven down to two. So if you start having four, five, six, seven, eight kids, people kind of look at you as a little bit weird. Um, I mean, I know you have five kids. I have five kids. And I, I remember, I'll just tell this story. Many years ago, we had a guy come and he was pouring a driveway at a house we had at the time. And uh, we got chatting and he says, how many kids do you have? And I said, oh, we have five kids. And he's like, what? He's like, like together? Like together? <laughs> or he was implying, you know, I must have brought three into the marriage and Susie must have brought two or whatnot. No, we, we actually had five kids together. That's not, that's not historically strange at all. But in our culture, that sounds kind of odd. So we have a a change of values in our culture. Now, there's another interesting factor. Lifestyles aren't helping when it comes to reproduction. Now, this is more about a biological issue, but there's, there's lots of evidence out that fertility issues are on the rise. I had a friend that was a fertility doctor, and I asked him about this, and he said, yeah, one of the reasons why a lot more people are having fertility issues is because they're they're waiting till they're closer to 30 years old or in their mm-hmm. 30s to have kids. You could potentially have kids as a teenager, but they're adding 15, 20 years from the time they went from puberty into uh, adulthood before they start having kids. They're delaying it. And the reality is your body functions differently uh, as, it, as it gets older. But um, statisticians and medical specialists have also told us that like, for example, male sperm count has dropped from the early 70s to the present by over 50% in the average male. That's a huge decrease. I think it's like 54%. I was born in 1973, so one study I saw said from, I think it was 1973 to 2011, which is 11 years ago, the average sperm count in men has dropped by f- around 54%. Wow. So that's, that's pretty significant. And there's various reasons for that, uh, diet, you know, we just eat a lot more garbage. Uh, lifestyle, people aren't out using their bodies much. They're sitting behind behind, behind computers. Uh, there's a problem with obesity. You know, people spend a lot of time watching television, playing video games, you know, drinking soda pop, uh, ordering in pizza, lack of exercise. So there's all sorts of issues in our culture. We talk about food supplies. Well, most people have a a year's worth of groceries uh, wrapped around their waist in the form of obesity. You know, there's a lot of calories hanging off a lot of people's bodies that they don't actually need. You know, sorry to be blunt about it, but we're a fat, and I'm not talking about P-H-A-T, 
<laughs> I don't think a, anybody uses that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're a we're a fat culture as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. We're a fat culture, and being obese seems normal. Uh, try going to some third world countries and try to find people that are that are ob obese. Mm -hmm. It's just they're living day to day. So this 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 um, gluttonous diet, this unhealthy diet, this stay in the house, don't expose yourself to sunlight, don't lift heavy objects. We are we're weakening. Uh, ourselves as humans, and that's also leading to fertility issues. Now, does the state care about that? No, why would they? If they want, is that an issue they're gonna be spending money trying to correct? So listen to this. If you remember, even when this pandemic broke out, wouldn't basic medical advice be drop some pounds, get outside, get some exercise, this is gonna help to increase your immune system. No, it's, it's all an artificial response. It's not actually dealing with root causes. And it's the same with so much medical science today. It doesn't actually deal with basic root common sense causes and give good, profound, wholesome advice. It's, it's an artificial response. But to this point, there's really not a lot of uh, motivation, I guess you could say, to fix the fertility crisis because the average bureaucrat wants a smaller population. Mm -hmm. And then one other thing is there's this trend on places like Twitter where young girls under pressure from the state who has told them that the world is uh, dying from overpopulation are vowing, this is even prior to marriage, prior to adulthood, are vowing not to have kids. So there's these hashtags uh, that are going around like uh, antinatalism mm. or... Uh, child-free or stop having kids. And sadly, I know it's maybe motivated by different um, different intentions, but sadly, I'm even hearing a lot of Christians say this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, the world's so bad, I'm not gonna have kids. The world's so bad, I'm not gonna have kids. So here's the thing. with Without understanding there's actually a commandment in scripture to have children, people are now playing God. They are deciding whether or not they're gonna have kids based upon the circumstances of life. Whatever narrative they've chosen to buy into, the world's falling apart or uh, you know, we have an overpopulation issue. And I wanna see that reversed. And fortunately, I, I think that among many godly people, that trend is starting to be reversed and there's a greater value being placed upon having children, having more children. This is a blessed thing. So th those are just some observations that I've made, sort of a convergence of factors that have led to the steep decline in uh, child, uh, the, the sizes of um, families, uh, the number of children in, in various households, and also just people's general interest or appreciation for children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are some helpful cultural things to be aware of. Now, we obviously as Christians take the Bible as our foundational authority, our ultimate authority on even the issue of having children. So maybe you can spend some time helping us set a stage for what the Bible has to say about reproduction, family sizes, et cetera. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Let me just make one more point that comes to mind. I'm, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, so I don't want to be a false prophet by predicting things that don't come true. But I think if you look at the general trajectory of culture, so it's not that difficult to presume what will happen tomorrow if you've been paying attention to, let's say, what's taken over the last 100 days. 
it's not that difficult to presume what will happen next year if you've paid attention to what's been happening over the last century. So you don't have to have prophetic gifts to see where things are going. And so far, uh, I have been accurate in my uh, understanding of things. Back when COVID was an even bigger deal than it is now, I, I've, I said this in this podcast and I've said it to many other people, the exact same arguments that were used to lock people down and close their businesses and shutter churches in the pandemic are directly uh, applicable to the climate crisis. And what are we seeing? We're seeing those same arguments being applied mm -hmm. to the climate crisis where we're in this catastrophe, the world is overpopulated, uh, carbon emissions are through the roof. There's discussion even at the WEF, the World Economic Forum about uh, carbon point passports, and I'm not sure what they would call them, but basically tracking people's carbon emissions. I said this I, I said this on this podcast, that's the direction things would probably go. Yep. Well, lo and behold, a year, year and a half later, that's what we're seeing. So let me, let me not predict, but let me uh, point people to the future. I think we're going to go from COVID, that we're going to apply those arguments to climate change. And then when that becomes accepted by the population, they're going to apply those directly to depopulation. And don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You heard it first here on Leadership Now podcast. <laughs> don't be surprised if in the future there's efforts to tax or limit or coerce people into having, a, having one or two children, just like they did in China. Mm -hmm. Don't be surprised. And if you if you peddle the, the the overpopulation myth, and you um, uh, put your ex your health experts out in front of the culture, and people start to see them as the arbiters of every single aspect of of cultural life and sociology, and you threaten people with penalties, job loss, or economic penalties, don't be surprised when even Christians bow and buckle to that. Mm. Okay, don't don't be surprised. Um, one other thing that just comes to mind really quick. I was looking at the social media for the Windsor-Essex Community Health Unit here in Windsor-Essex. And if you look at them, they're putting out posts now about minimum wages. And in other words, they're, they're getting away from medicine and they're, they're getting into uh, economic theory and all sorts of other things. So as soon as you, as soon as you bring the, the medical experts out and say, you are the experts, that are skilled enough and educated enough to tell us everything there is to know, not just about health and medicine, but lockdowns and church life and what people need and don't need in order to function as holistic beings. You've given them a green light to speak into every aspect of life. And they will gladly accept that mandate and run with it. Mm -hmm. So to your question, <laughs> what does the Bible say about these issues? Well, in the very first chapter of our Bible, who here believes in the authority of Scripture? Yes or no? Do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to answer that question for themselves at some point or another. Do you believe in the authority of Scripture? Yes or no? Well, if you do, then Genesis chapter 1 says it all. In Genesis 1.28, of course, we have the record of the creation of the world. And on the sixth day, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, but Adam and Eve. And I know that's an old joke, but I still love it. <laughs> and the Lord blessed them. And it says there, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth 
and subdue it. Now, every one of those, be fruitful, that's an imperative verb. Mm -hmm. Multiply, that's an imperative verb. Fill the earth, that's a, an imperative verb. Subdue it, that's an imperative verb. Then it goes on to say, and have dominion, that's an imperative verb. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chris, this is the very first commandment ever to be heard by the human ear. The very first thing hmm. recorded in the word of God that Adam and Eve heard from God were these two words, be fruitful. The second two words, and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That is how foundational bearing children is to the human race. We are commanded. It's not an option. We are commanded by God, not only to have dominion, to represent him as his vice regents, but we are commanded by God to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, of course, that's in the context of marriage. You're not commanded right. to be fruitful and multiply as a single person. Right. And as we subdue the earth, as we steward the earth, as we have dominion over the earth, part of the expression of that is to be fruitful and multiply. So it doesn't say, well, here's your options. You can go earn five degrees or you can have kids. It doesn't say, well, a young married couple can just say, that's just not our thing. We don't really like kids. No, we do know, we'll talk about this in a bit. There's some that are infertile, they're barren. We understand that. God's word has something to say about that. We understand that there's some that want to be married and aren't. I understand that. And there's some that are married that don't want to be. <laughs> I understand that. But the creational command, the normative, natural order of things is a husband and wife comes together and get, gets married and they have children. There's no footnote. Oh, by the way, when the world gets to 6.8 billion, you need to stop. That's a commandment from God. It's part of our stewardship. Then as we move through scriptures, and when the Bible speaks of children, it's always in terms of blessing. You hear people, oh, kids, you know, they drive me nuts. Oh, my kids, oh, I can't believe I have this many, and I should have stopped earlier. You know, honey, can you go out and get a vasectomy? I mean, we're just, I'm sick and tired of these kids. Just negative, negative talk that often surrounds the idea of of children you know children get in the way they they cramp our style you know who wants a who wants a mom bod you know who wants a a flabby belly because she's had several children who wants a a scar because she had a c-section you know i just i want my body back you know this is the kind of language mm -hmm. that we often hear come out of the mouth of westerners but this is what god says about children in psalm 127 3 to 5 behold Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, folks, that doesn't mean children are your trophies. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you get that vibe where you get a family that has just a lot of kids and they're, they're sort of arrogant about it. It's like, oh, look, we got 10 kids. How many do you have? It's not like that. It's not your trophy. Your children aren't your identity. Mm -hmm. If someone is not able to have children, you're not better than them. If someone's only able to have two children, you have 15 children, you're not better than them. Mm -hmm. These are This is a stewardship from God. So children are not trophies. 
They're certainly not the source of a mother or father's identity, and they're certainly not the grounds for bragging, but they are a blessing. And so we need to be careful about speaking negatively about children or about big families. We should celebrate that. That should be a good thing. We need a, a revival of applause when children are born into Christian households. This is a wonderful thing. Now, does that mean that every single human being is called to marriage? No. So we all start off unmarried and some remain that way. So there's nothing weird about being unmarried. Every human on the planet at one point has been unmarried. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing weird about that. And the Bible is very clear in passages like 1 Corinthians 7 that some will be called to celibacy. And that's completely fine. And there's not only room at the foot of the cross, but there's room in the ministry of the church for yes. single people. Some say, well, we don't, we don't have elders that are single. Oh, but you're okay with single apostles? You know, Paul was single and was incredibly effective. So there's no, there, there's no prohibition in Scripture uh, to hold office in the life of the church because you're single. And there will be many that will be called to infertility. The Bible speaks of this from the opening uh, book of the Bible onward when God gave this promise to um, to Abraham that he would make his descendants like the sands on the uh, of the seashore, the stars in the sky. Sarah then had a fertility issue, and then every generation thereafter, right? So Sarah had a fertility issue. Rebecca has a fertility issue. Rachel has a fertility issue. And then we have the opposite problem in Exodus. Yeah. It's like super fertility. So, but the the reason for that is every generation, those first three or four generations, there's this question mark, is God going to do what God has said? And then those early uh, patriarchs were sanctified as they put their faith and trust in God. Some of them jumped the gun and resorted to uh, trying to produce kids by concubines or whatnot, but it's called into question, but ultimately God does provide children. So I'm just maybe getting a little bit off track there, but what I want to emphasize is that we acknowledge as Christians and pastors that some will, some will die young. Some people will die young. Some people will be born with disabilities and some people will not be able to have children. That's life. There's always challenges in life. But let me just encourage those that may be struggling with fertility with this psalm, this portion of a psalm, Psalm 113. I was reading this earlier. It's it's pretty awesome. Psalm 113, verses 49 says, The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? We're like, man, that's such a majestic, beautiful word picture of God. And then that God is portrayed in the text as one who is engaged in human affairs. So verse seven says, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, Mm -hmm. making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So there we have a bit of a portal into the heart of God. God does concern himself with, he notices the plights of the poor and other passages of scripture, the widow and the orphan, but also those that struggle with what we would call 
infertility. Mm-hmm. And God can greatly sanctify us through that. He acknowledges that can be a very painful challenge for couples that want to have children that can't. But what I would say to those that are barren is don't make that your identity. Mm. And and don't make that something that stops you from serving the Lord. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um opportunities for not only for single people, maybe you've never heard this before, but there's a ton of opportunities for single people to minister to married people. Oftentimes in our churches, it's like the married people aren't doing enough to minister to the single people. Well, what about the single people ministering to the married people? There's challenges on both sides. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of single people that are not content to be single, and there's a lot of married people that wish they weren't married. And they need to be mentored and discipled. And there's some single people that are far more spiritually mature than some married couples. So we, yeah. we need to minister back and forth, right? It's not like the married's married the, the married people minister to the singles. Both parties can uh, minister to one another. And it's the same with children. There's a lot of married couples that would be desperately appreciative to have a godly single person step into their lives and say, you know, I'll babysit. I'll, I'll take some of that stress off. I'll help you out. I'll help you clean the house. Mutually ministering to one another. I know when I was a younger, younger um, uh, man, well, I was a child and a teenager growing up in a single parent home, I was very grateful for various godly men that took an interest in me in the church. And uh, some of them were single men that didn't have kids that just sort of took me under their wing or there was a couple uh they they didn't have children of their own they kind of took me under their wing they were like surrogate father figures for me and i'm very grateful for that Uh, and i'm thankful for these men so there's lots of opportunity childless people uh i guess what i would say should be looking for opportunities to bless others rather than assuming that they should get some special attention Hmm. and that might sound uh, maybe a little off-putting to some, but it needs to be said that rather than spending our time that life in, in life, we're going to be wounded, but rather than spending our time licking our wounds, we need to look for opportunities to leverage our suffering and our woundedness and our, our, our maladies to bless and minister to other people. But back to the main point, the main point is that the Bible using imperatives, commands, married people to have children. If you mm-hmm. can't, no problem. If you're single, you shouldn't be having kids. Mm-hmm. But to make a willful, deliberate choice, we're not gonna have kids because it's inconvenient, I would go as far as to say is a sin. It's a sin against God's creational commands. Would there be exceptions to that rule? Obviously, mm-hmm. obviously, if you get married when you're 85, no. Um, <laughs> Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. if you have like a definitive, deadly, inheritable disease, I get it. You might want to reconsider. If you have, you know, you're living in absolute abject poverty, starving to death, I get it. So there's exceptions to that. But when you have a healthy, Mm -hmm. godly Christian couple that simply says, eh, that's not our thing. Why not? I just... It's not our thing. I would suggest you might not be as godly as you think you are because that mindset is not informed by scripture. Mm -hmm. That mindset is informed by this child-free culture that we live in 
maybe some of the depopulation elements coming in, maybe a failure to deal deal with some of the, the challenges that you had growing up. So this is something that needs to be said. Most people won't say this because it is offensive to a slice of the slice of uh, the average congregation, but it needs to be said. God has commanded it in the Word of God. This is the normative trajectory for a married couple, and so unless there's justifiable reasons why that can't or shouldn't happen, that should be the direction that um, couples should be headed in. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what we talk about on this podcast. And I know Joe Boo talks about thinking Christianly, right? It's part of a whole worldview. And this is one of those areas where you might realize, I don't think as Christianly as I thought, right? Well, I would say that was true for me. So we're all being sanctified, folks. Mm-hmm. I'm Hopefully I'm being sanctified a little bit more every year. And I, I was raised, of course, I was raised in a fairly large family based upon the, the time period it was in. We had, there were six of us. My wife was raised in a family of six, and so we were sort of normal. It was sort of normal for us to have lots of siblings around. But you're also hearing things like uh, make sure you own a house first, make sure you know, you've earned your third degree first, make sure you have money in the bank, you know, make sure you do this, make sure you get your minivan you know, with snow tires on it before you ever have kids. Yeah. Make sure you do this. And we all these artificial delays, all mm-hmm. these artificial delays, you know, how many years are you going to wait? Well, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, just not the timing's not right or we want to work on our marriage. Or There's all sorts of humanistic, non-biblical excuses to wait or delay or just never to have children. And um, – Unfortunately, you're going to be hard-pressed in the Word of God to find any of those categories. Mm-hmm. So let's take a moment because those obstacles, those worldview issues do crop up, and maybe we can just kind of hit on them, the obstacles that would lead Christians to think that it actually is better to have fewer or maybe even no children. Like, let's tackle some of those. Yeah. So most broadly, I would say this is a worldview issue. Most broadly, it's a worldview issue. The reality is when we think about economics, most of us don't start with the Bible. When we think about marriage, most of us don't start with the Bible. When we think about children, most of us don't start with the Bible. You know, we have people that have um, sociology degrees or ECE degrees. They actually think they're more skilled at understanding child psychology and how to raise kids than people that actually have read the Bible. And What we have to think about as Christians is what are the lies that I've been told that I'm not even aware I've been told? Mm -hmm. What are the lies I've been told? And they're often very subtle. So obviously you would know, be pretty obvious if someone said, oh, it's okay to murder people. It's like, yeah, no, that's clearly a lie. Oh, it's okay to rob banks. Uh, Yeah, no, that's a lie. Oh, it's okay to um, covet your neighbor's wife. No, that's a lie. But what about the more subtle lies? What about the more subtle lies that would say things like um, financial prosperity is the number one goal that a couple should strive after before they have children? What about that lie? Where where is, show me one verse in the Bible that points us in that direction. Mm -hmm. Of course, a father must be able to provide for his family. So that the lazy guy that's sitting at home doing nothing is actually sinning against God. That's a disciplinable offense. He who does not provide for his own, the Bible says, is worse than an unbeliever. It's worse than an infidel. So that's a that's a disciplinable offense. If you're a pastor and you have people in your church that just refuse to work, put them under church discipline. 
That's a disciplinable offense. Again, you don't hear that a lot of places, but it's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And what about the uh, the other lies that um, revolve around thinking that uh, you should just have as many children as as is convenient or that you can, quote unquote, handle? Well, the reality is, can any of us really handle children? You know, like er, children are born very untamed and it's part of our our stewardship to disciple them, to help them to understand their own sinfulness, to discipline them in the in the fear and admission of the Lord, to teach them the word of God, Deuteronomy 6, to talk about it all day long, whether you're traveling or at home or whatever it might be. That's part of our, it's a discipleship mandate is, is fundamentally what it is. So we've got all these lies that um, stand in the way of uh couples having kids or, well, I come from an abusive home, so you know I'm ill-equipped or whatever the lie, all these subtle little lies that have resulted in many people who should be having children, not having children. Well, we got to wait till, you know, and on and on and on and on. The devil wants you to wait. The devil wants you to delay. The devil's not pro-life and he's not really even pro-choice. He's pro-death. He's pro-death. He, he does not want the image of God to be born out in creation. He does, not, he does not want Christian couples to have large families. He, he, does, he wants you to be a materialist. He, he wants you to be fixated on your next degree. He wants you to think that you have to have a 1,500-square-foot brand-new house with two nice cars in the driveway and a white picket fence around it before you're ready to have kids. He wants you, he wants you to delay he doesn't want you to get married. He wants you to sow your wild oats, sleep around, or be frustratingly celibate till you're 35. He wants you to be that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not pro-life. He's pro-death. That's the devil's specialty. And he will subtly impact and influence every structure, every culture, be it the medical establishment, uh, the, um, the population experts, people that study apes like Jane Goodall, he will use anybody and everything possible to reduce the image of God on earth and to rob God of the rightful glory that is due his name when people are born that come to faith in Christ and represent him well in a broken world. So we need to think through these these issues. And you know, my generation was told lies, a lot of lies about birth control, frankly, a lot of lies about uh, the, the safety of birth control. I think most young couples are starting to, to question that a lot more. Some of these birth controls do cause abortions. Some of, some of these birth control pills uh, do um, reduce the likelihood that you will be able to have children down the road. So couples need to do their research, open their eyes. Mm-hmm. We've been told lies that people that are genetically deficient are somehow less. That you know a, a, a child that's born Down syndrome, well, that's, that's an abortable child. Mm-hmm. These are the lies. Yeah. And sometimes even Christians, well, you know, do we want to bring a kid into the world that has Down syndrome? Man, maybe it's not a bad thing to terminate this pregnancy. These are people that still claim to know Christ. Yeah. It's a disgrace. So we need to, we, we all need to be open to be corrected by God's word. And if you were, if you did an ECE or a, um, some sort of a childhood uh, educational assistant certificate, or you have a bachelor's degree in social work or psychology, 
or you went to you know Canadian or American or UK public schools, chances are along the way, there's been certain lies that you didn't catch that have stuck in your head that have affected your view of marriage and your view of child rearing. And the word of God corrects that. It's very mm -hmm. simple, be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. Amen. So then maybe turning the corner and we say, okay, what are the benefits of child rearing, child bearing children in general? Or you get someone to cut the grass and collect yeah, the mail. Exactly. <laughs> shovel the snow. Walk the dog. <laughs> Take care of you when you're old. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's many benefits to having kids. First of all, child rearing sanctifies you because we are so selfish. And when you have to actually care for years on end for another human being until they're adults, that sanctifies you. You become less selfish. You become less individualistic. I've even seen a lot of people mature rapidly when they have kids. They're just not fixated on themselves anymore. So I, I, I know there's a lot of young men, for example, and young women that listen to my podcast, and I'm not painting everybody with a broad brush, but generally speaking, there's a reason why there's this stereotype of the 25-year-old guy that lives in his parents' basement and plays video games after work every night kind of being immature or the 25-year-old guy that actually has children to care for tends to be a little bit more mature. Now, does the chicken come before the egg? You know, maybe maybe he has kids because he is more mature, but at the same time, having to to realize that my schedule is not my own anymore, yep. that sanctifies you. I, I have mouths to feed. I have children to discipline. I have children to disciple. You know, maybe hockey, soccer games to take them to, whatever it might be, youth groups. It it. I found that having kids made me less selfish. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I was selfish, but I was selfish. Mm -hmm. I was self-interested. My schedule revolved around me, myself, and I. Of course, when you get married, that's somewhat corrected when you start having kids. You know, it's it's corrected even more. So when I hear couples that even delay having kids for many, many years, I'm not saying there's anything unscriptural about waiting a little bit, but when they deliberately and conscientiously wait for years on end before they have kids, it always boils down to convenience. It's mm -hmm. always it's it's always framed as a convenience issue. It's just inconvenient mm -hmm. to have to have children. We we got to pay off our student debt. Well, don't get into debt in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we got to buy a house. Well, why? You know, rent an apartment, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. So that's a, a big thing. I think it sanctifies you. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is. Your children will be some of your choicest disciples. So we're all called to disciple the lost, and you're going to start out with children that are lost. Children aren't born saved; they're born lost. So when they come to that age where you can now talk to them about the gospel, you need to bring the gospel to bear upon their lives and help them to understand their own sin, and help them to understand their need for a savior. And you should be praying for their salvation. I know. So my own mother, she got saved after she had um, my older sister. So from from there forward, all of us were born when she was a believer. And she told me this years ago, and um, we put it into practice too. Like we prayed before our children were even born that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we just mm -hmm. prayed for them. And we were kind of optimistic about that, I guess you could say. we We parented them in such a way that you know, we directed them. It wasn't. It wasn't. We were foisting our faith onto them per se, but we certainly weren't just saying, "Hey, you just make up your own mind." No, mm -hmm. we were. 
we were teaching them in the Christian faith. We weren't like, you know, here's the lay of the land, pick whatever religion you want. We were, we were um, pushing them toward, we were living out the Christian life and presenting them with one gospel and one gospel, one way, one truth, one life. So it's a great opportunity to make disciples and it's such a blessing when your children do grow uh, into meaningful disciples. Another thing that's a benefit is you become a teacher, right? You you now have to teach these children not only not only how to feed themselves and clothe themselves and clean their room and get up for school and do homework, but you get to teach them about math, science, biology. You get to teach them about economics. You get to teach them about the Word of God. Now, do you do that exclusively by yourself? Probably not. You probably hire tutors or part of homeschooling co-ops or send them to a Christian school or whatever. You, it's okay to delegate some of that authority, but you become a teacher. And it's, it is interesting as the years roll by to look back and to see the, the fruit of your labors mm-hmm. when you hear your kids talking to other people. You're like, you, I, you learned that from me. Yeah. And I learned it from someone else and they learned it from someone else. So there's this chain reaction when we do our job of, of teaching our kids by the way, when it comes to education, please, I'm just begging you, get your kids at a public schools, especially at an elementary level. Yep. Folks, it's so, unless you're in a jurisdiction that's very unique, it is so incredibly poisonous. Frankly, it's more poisonous than you even understand if you're not there. So I know it's expensive. I know it's time consuming, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. You know, and there may be other people in your circle of influence to help. I'm not going to judge you if you don't. I'm not going to treat you worse if you don't, but I'm just begging you. Like it's such a poisonous environment to the more the more parents band together in homeschooling cooperatives or classical Christian schools or whatnot and actually take responsibility for raising their children for Christ. Frankly, the cheaper it is, the better programs we can offer, yep. the more people's lives are enriched and on and on and on and on. You will not regret it. Okay. Now, what I'm not an advocate of is sending your kid to a school that just teaches all the regular public school stuff, but as chapel once a week. Like it has to be an actual Christian education mm-hmm. where there, the subjects like this leak out at an age appropriate level into the subjects that are being taught. So there, there is a Christian way to teach math and it's not about the um, solving the formula, but there's a Christian way to teach math. And there's an unchristian way to teach math. There's a Christian way to teach language and an unchristian way to teach language. There's a vertical focus to it all. There's discussions that need to be had around the value of the intellect, how the purpose of information, how is information to be used, maximizing your potential for Christ, not for self-aggrandizement. These sorts of things are going to be woven into the curriculum. You're going to teach in a way that there's understanding, the ability to process what they've learned, to wisely apply it. That's a robust Christian education, mm-hmm. okay, in brief. So do that. Um, okay, here's here's one we could have some fun with. It's a strategic way to, to win a future generations for Christ. So we're all concerned about our culture. And here I am as one voice. Hopefully in my life I'll make many disciples. But I can also expand my efforts into the next generation by having many children if I'm able to have many children. If I actually disciple my kids well, Susie and I disciple our kids well, we expand our reach mm-hmm. for God's glory into the next generation. That's right. Now think about this very practically. 
are these LGBTQ folks that are always wanting all these rights, are they are they gonna be the ones having children to create the next generation? Not really. A few of them will, but not really. They're not pro-children, they're selfish. Mm -hmm. Sex for them is all about personal gratification. It's not about producing children. Mm -hmm. Are the godless atheists who wanna depopulate the world gonna have kids? No, they're not the ones that are gonna be having kids. Are are the, the wokeites gonna be having kids? No, mm -hmm. these aren't the ones that are gonna be having kids. Now what I say, not having kids, obviously some will, but the reality is, who are the people that tend to have children? People of faith, mm -hmm. specifically Christians and some other faiths, of course, that value these same value, value these same values as well. We, this is gonna sound maybe a, a little crass, but we can out-multiply them. <laughs> we really can. Yeah. We can out-multiply them. The, what's, what's bad is that when we have the children and then turn them over to the fools of the world to educate and then they destroy our children. Right. That makes no sense at all. Godly people having children and then sending them off to be destroyed by the world and to turn into the next generation of heathens and atheists mm -hmm. and people that are promoting all sorts of crazy ideologies. So how do you, what is the best way to bring about tangible change in a culture, the full proclamation of the gospel? Mm -hmm. But numbers matter. And if we have children that are actually raised in faithful churches that understand this stuff, in a very short 18 years, they will be adults. And they will be out starting their own families shortly thereafter and multiplying our efforts. So very quickly, you can get people into educational uh, leadership, into political offices, into the financial industry, and on and on and on, and into the pulpits of our churches that actually think like Christians, who are raised by faithful Christians, who are raised by faithful Christians, who are raised by faithful Christians, and the opportunities to exponentially impact your country is is an amazing thing to think about. So I, I want people to be, uh, you know, you don't have kids just to kind of win the numbers game, but it is a benefit. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say, Chris, it's a blessing to your other children. I know when uh, I have five siblings, so I th I'm sure all of us at some point in our childhood were, were thinking to my, themselves, I wish my brother or sister was dead. You know, just so mad at them or you get into fights and whatever. Oh, I wish I hadn't had any other brothers and sisters. But as you get older, you value each one of them. And I'm grateful for every one of my brothers and sisters. They don't all walk with Christ, but I'm grateful for each of them. You know, I would deeply mourn their death and I'm a better man because of them. Their personalities, the conflicts, mm -hmm. the challenges, the, 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 the family dynamics. I was blessed by that. And having children is, is also a blessing to you in your older age because, you know, the chances of you dying alone are uh, much greater if you're, um, you know, if you don't have an extended family than if you do. So these are some very tangible benefits and blessings to having children yeah. and having lots of children if we're able. Yeah. It also is such a, uh, well, it, I think taking it from a spiritual perspective, you just see like you understand the love of God and his, when God is called a father and you are a father, you just get it at a whole new level when you're cleaning your your child's diaper and you're yeah, like, this yeah. kid can do nothing <laughs> at all for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, a good point. God is, 
God, and, you so know, it's a, it's a lot of fun, right? There's, a, there's those challenging moments. Every parent has those challenging moments, probably think to themselves in their flesh, what, why did I do this? But there's just so many innumerable blessings to having children that it's just really awesome. Mm-hmm. For sure. So now we're, we've been talking about this creation mandate to multiply, but you know, many people who are listening to this podcast could be in the position where they're done having kids. They have a quiver full. Um, and so what would be your top five pieces of advice uh, to parents or maybe young parents in this case? Well, I think being a disciple-making parent is top of the list. You You cannot think of parenting simply as feeding and clothing and educating your kids. It, that's so reductionistic. Fundamentally, my five children are disciples that God has put in my had put in my path in order for me to minister to and bless and teach in the ways and word of the Lord. And so that changes the way you parent. It almost sounds like pastor talk, but there is a difference. You can kind of get catch the vibe, but some parents are more concerned about like grades. That's what they brag about on Facebook. You know, my little kid won a hockey trophy or they, they got into a basketball league or that's just all they talk about. It's just very horizontal. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with your kids succeeding in sports or music or the arts or whatever. But if that is what you compliment your child for the most, that's what they will pursue the most. Mm-hmm. But if you are saying to your child, look, whether you work at Max Milk or become a uh, you know the uh, prime minister of Canada or the world's most famous lawyer or whatever it might be, I'll, I'll be proud of you if you're just serving Jesus and just mm-hmm. loving on him and making disciples. That is such a blessing for a child to, to hear. So not only with your words, what you tend to emphasize, but also being a strategic disciple maker, I'd say that's number one. Make sure in everything you do, you're discipling your, your children. I would also say um, when it comes to rules and regulations and boundaries, just have a very small list of very core rules, sort of the central rules, the central do's and do nots, Mm -hmm. thou shalt and thou shalt nots, and police from that center. And then when it comes to these secondary issues, offer advice. But some parents police everything or police nothing. It's like Mm -hmm. everything's a big deal. Curfew is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, The color of your hair is a big deal. Really? Like, is that a really big deal? Is that a hill you're going to die on? I, when I was with my kids, for example, there was, there was just certain things that you would just put up with. You never say no to me ever. If I tell you to do something, you might be reluctant. You may not like it, but you will never say no. I can, I could count on probably two fingers, the number of times among all five of my children where they ever said no to me. And I can tell you it didn't go well for them. Mm -hmm. So you just don't, you demand obedience and it just becomes a normal part of the culture of the family. We obey our father. This is basic Bible. So that would be something that's really critical. Um, you will treat your mother with respect. There's there's no there's no um, room for flexibility there at all. Mm-hmm. You you will never disrespect my wife. You'll never disrespect your mother. You will honor your parents. Um, we also required of our children that they be good stewards of their money. So we just said, look, we'll just take all your money and you'll you'll get none or you need to be committed to tithing, giving, and saving. And we created opportunities for them to do that. So that's that. those are important things for us. You're going to be in youth group. You're going to be at church. And because 
you know, our church has always been, a, I think, a fairly healthy church. Our kids never, we never had to push them in that. They always wanted to be in church. Mm-hmm. But let's say there was a time when, a, if there is a time when a parent has a kid, it's like, I don't want to go. Um, yeah, too bad. You're going. Mm-hmm. And being in youth group, these sorts of things are just really wise. But in terms of things like, for example, um, like hairstyles, I mean, unless it's completely off the wall, I, I just didn't care. I would yeah. tease them yeah. about it. I'd be like, yeah. that looks ridiculous. <laughs> but I'm not going to be like, go get a haircut. It was like, this looks ridiculous. And the um, uh, one other thing would be like curfews. Our rule was you have a curfew as soon as you break the curfew. They'd be like, well, what's the curfew? Well, you'll find out if you break it. Yeah. What do you mean? Exercise wisdom. Yep. Like if you start coming in at some ridiculous time, then you're going to get a curfew. But if you're always kind of reasonable and there's a good reason why you're home at the time you're home, then it's not going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. We emphasized boundaries with um, the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't sleep around. It's not, it's not going to happen. You just don't do that. Um, so parenting from the center uh, is really important and not being legalistic mm-hmm. where you got a rule for everything. But at the same time, not being completely wide open. Ah, my my child, you know, my believing child is dating an unbeliever. Yeah, no, that that doesn't happen in our house. Mm-hmm. But what if they already are? You tell them no. Really? Yeah. But what if they, what if they try to cut off their relationship with me? Oh well, I don't think they will. Mm-hmm. But don't live in fear. You're the parent. Yep. So those yep. things are are important. I would also say. Uh, expose them to a lot of different kinds of people. Like you may have a child that's more shy or doesn't want to go to youth or Sunday school or school or whatever. You're going. Mm-hmm. Now, children aren't dogs, but I, I was told many years ago by my veterinarian that if you have a puppy and in the first four months of its life, you expose it to 200 people, you'll never have a problem with it attacking people hmm. or being unfriendly or whatnot. So he's like, in the first four months, like take it to the park, take it to school grounds, have people over, like just expose it to all sorts of people, let them pet the puppy and touch the puppy. And the puppy will be very well socially adjusted. It's the same with kids. I know kids aren't dogs, but it's kind of the same thing. The more people you expose your children to, the better. Make sure you invite people over to your house. Take them to kids' birthday parties. Folks, let them be bullied a little bit. It's okay. Let them be put in situations they got to really articulate their faith. Like not every relationship is going to be great. You're not going to protect your kids from harm. I think in the old days, a lot of people would homeschool, not on principle, not on the principle that we would advocate for, which is parental authority over your child. They would homeschool because they were socially awkward. They wanted to protect their kids from everyone else. Then their kids grew up socially awkward and they can't figure out why. Mm -hmm. So it's important in a very diverse world for people to be exposed. Send them on, um, um, ministry assignments, like make them serve in the church or go overseas on a really dirty, hard mission trip (laughs) or something like that. Just expose them to a lot of people. Send them to work early, like get a job as soon as possible. Most kids actually want to. Mm -hmm. Parents hold them back. Oh, you got I want you to get A's. Hey, I'd rather my kid get straight C's and know how to work when they graduate than get straight A's and have no idea how to work for someone else. Mm -hmm. Now, I think for most, you can do both. Just consider their part-time job like another subject, but that's important. Yep. Here's another one, Chris, which um, I think is so common sense, but people don't think about this much, is that we would say we're raising adults, not kids. So there are kids, but what we're doing is we're raising adults. In other words, 
we said to our kids, when you're 18, we want you to have all the resources and tools to actually function as an adult. Mm -hmm. So by 18, you should be equipped to be married. By 18, you should be equipped to be a parent. By 18, you should be equipped to pay your own bills. By 18, you should be equipped to cook your own meals. By 18, you should be standing on your own feet spiritually. You know, By 18, you should be robustly serving in the life of the church, on and on and on and on. The, to the modern listener, and I bet you even for some of our listeners right now, that's like, whoa, that's kind of hardcore. That's your culture speaking. Mm-hmm. That's your culture because historically this is how life went for people. You know, we've heard the stories of 14, 15-year-old boys fighting in World War One. It's normal for, I'll, I'll speak to men for a moment, for men to be adults and to be able to do the things that adults do at 18 years of age. It's a very weird thing when parents are like, oh yeah, but yeah, but you don't understand. My, my kid's a little more shy. Well, I had, I had some shy ones too, who cares? Well, you know, they're, they're a little, look, you might have a child that has some unique challenges, I get it, but you wanna say to your kids, by the time you're 18, I move from telling you what to do mm-hmm. to advising and guiding and, and giving some direction. Now, that doesn't mean kids have to move out at 18, I think a couple of mine did and some of them ha- uh, didn't, but it's, it shouldn't be unusual for 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old people to actually be getting married. It's like, that's not unusual. Mm-hmm. You're already two sevenths of the way through your life. It shouldn't be unusual for us to expect that an adult should be able to provide for themselves. Okay, now if you choose to help them with their schooling or let them live at your house a little longer or what, fine, no problem. But treat them like adults. And I find when you train kids that way, they love it. Mm-hmm. They're like, wow, you actually think of me as an adult? Yeah, I do. Wow, that's like a kind of a boost, right? Mm-hmm. To their 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 sense of uh, maturity. And then finally, Chris, I would just say, have fun, like have a sense of humor. You know what I find a lot of parents make the mistake of? They never tease their kids. They never, they're never, you want to be playful. You don't want to bully your kids. But teasing your kids, like we should all feel comfortable with being teased in an appropriate way. It's it's a way of socializing. Like I have, I have weaknesses. Sometimes you get teased about those things. Like don't take yourself so seriously. A lot of, a lot of Christians, they take themselves so seriously. I see them in church, you crack a joke and they're just, there's no smile whatsoever. It's like, yeah. like you're taking yourself too seriously, man. Like, have a little belly laugh now and again. Like, pl- be playful in your home. It, it's it's not only not only socializes people, but it, there's joy in that. There's a lot of fun in that. So you know, life is short, and there's a lot of hilarious things about life that we can joke about and talk about. And you know, being a Christian doesn't mean we're just you know all tensely parsing Hebrew verbs every day and studying raw theology and having these heady conversations about some theological subject, like have a good laugh once in a while. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously it needs to be appropriate, but having a sense of humor in the home and joy, I think is something that I, I, I quite enjoy. I quite enjoyed it in my family of origin. And I think it's been a blessing to our kids as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, <laughs> that's a good pieces of advice. Um, so a lot of what we've said you know, it's, it's great if you're a parent who has children, if you don't have children or can't have children, it might be perceived, um, maybe 
insensitive. Sure. Or people might just be taking it differently. And so what kind of advice or encouragement would you offer to those that can't have children or maybe are even still single? Yeah, I see that at times. Someone will post a, an anniversary announcement and some single person will post a comment, boy, I wish I was married. Well, mm -hmm. don't be that single person. Congratulate them. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Don't be that person that sulks, you know, that sucks on your thumb because you don't have what someone else has. Folks, we all, there's always people that have something we want, whether it's you don't have a spouse and someone has a spouse, you don't have kids and they have kids, you're, you're, you don't have health and they have health, you don't have money and they have money, you don't have, you're not living in a free country and they are, um, you don't have a horrible prime minister um, and they do, you know, yeah. whatever it might be. <laughs> Everybody has deficits and some are obviously more painful than others, but don't be that person. But what I would say to, to single people or uh, childless couples is kind of what I said before. That's, it's not weird. We, we all start off single and some remain that way. And if, if you don't mind me being like super practical, some people are single because God has called them into a life of celibacy. Other people are single and the fault lies with them. Mm -hmm. The fault lies with them because they, they're they selfish or they might mistreat people. Every, um, every year, I'm not doing it this year because there's a bunch of things going on, but every year I've, I've taken a cluster of young guys together and tried to disciple them. And we talk about interacting with women and sometimes you just have to give them like the most basic advice. So one guy had to say, you don't go to a woman on the first date and say, hey, are you, are you able to have eight kids or 10 kids? Like what is wrong with you? Women are very sensitive, especially to fer fertility issues. Mm -hmm. You never wanna put pressure on your wife. She's the one that's bearing the kids. If she can only have one kid, so be it. If she can't have any kids, don't think less of her. If she can have six kids, the next person can have eight. She's not like a lesser woman. Like be be sensitive as a guy to the fact that, you know, you might want kids, but your wife is the one that's actually gestating these children and bearing them. Yeah. So don't don't be overbearing or have some preconceived number attached to how many kids do you want to have? Uh, you know, these sorts of things. So we want to be want to be careful and acknowledge that having children isn't the be all and end all. It's not our identity. So I'm not I'm not trying to run child rearing so far up the flagpole that that's our identity as Christians. I just want to bring it a little further up the flagpole than it has been for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so being, being single, there may be some things that you can do to get married. So maybe you need to like ask some people around you, like, is there anything about me that's kind of off-putting? And it might be something simple like brush your teeth or, you know, it, it might be something like, you know, you, you're, you're argumentative or you're too intense or you act socially awkward, or you say inappropriate things to men, or you say inappropriate things to women, or you know whatever it might be. You might get some good, tangible, like hearty advice that that helps you along. Um, but that's that's kind of the the minority. I think there's lots and lots of people that are just wonderful, godly, like single people, just incredible people that just haven't been blessed at this point with a spouse. There's nothing wrong with that. If you if you feel called to marry, I would just say keep pushing on those doors and and see what doors God's God opens and it's it's super cool. I've done 
weddings for couples that are, you know, barely 20 years old. And I've done, you know, weddings for couples in their forties and fifties and whatnot. So it's a good thing. But, um, we do acknowledge that singleness and infertility is both a gift and for many a pain. And that's true of our whole spiritual journey, that many of the things that are most painful turn out to be gifts as God blesses us with greater reliance upon him as he really helps us to think through what our true identities are. A lot of childless couples, even though it's more and more difficult, have wonderful opportunities to foster and to adopt. And I want to see more of that. I just always love stories when I meet people like, hey, we adopted this child or we adopted these children. That just warms my heart. And Christians need to be more helpful. You know, if there's a price tag attached to that, churches and other Christians should be helping to fund those things because, you know, we are Mm pro-life and and we want to be able to provide homes for those that have been abandoned or or who are um, parentless. Think of your children more as a stewardship, right? Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. The children aren't yours, they're God's. For some, he might not entrust any children for someone else one, for someone else 10. Obviously you have a human role in it, but there's a stewardship there and you need to bless those um, children according to God's plans. And I would just also say, help other people. Like look around you. There's there's people around you that may not have the skill sets or the experience or as much time with Christ as you do that just may, may not be reflecting on the kind of things we're reflecting on and maybe really struggling raising their kids. I might say something in this podcast, which is old hat to me because I've been walking with Christ for 40 years that a brand new Christian may never have heard about before. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Like I want to be able to pass on whatever wisdom the Lord has given to me. So helping other people, ultimately each each couple is responsible for their kids. That's kind of that sphere sovereignty thing. But not being afraid of of getting advice and getting help from from others, especially if you're in a situation where you're a single mom or your spouse isn't a believer, or you have children with unique disabilities or challenges, the church is a family. And don't be afraid of seeking that help uh, mm-hmm. from from others uh, al- along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, one of our final questions, um, we don't necessarily really ca- care about the opinion of the depopulation crowd, but sometimes their ideas get to people. And so maybe, Someone who's been listening has been told it's irresponsible to have lots of kids due to the carbon footprint. What would right. you say to those people? I would say register for the Mission of God conference at Harvest Bible Church on December the 10th. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're single, that's also a good choice. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. So, well, if you're single and you're in a church, there's not another single person, you know, you want to be faithful to your church, but there's a practical reality to that too. But um, we're going to address this a little bit, but... I would just say a couple quick points. The carbon, the whole depopulation narrative, the whole climate change narrative, I can guarantee you is actually not about that. It's not about population. It's not about climate. There's a spiritual core to these these narratives. They, by the way, a proper robust view of stewardship fixes all all of those tangible problems. Mm-hmm. It, stewardship, if we have a proper understanding that we're stewards, then we don't dump garbage in, in waterways. Mm-hmm. If we have a proper understanding of stewardship, we don't throw plastic bottles out the window when we're driving from point A to point B. 
if we have a proper understanding of stewardship, we don't indiscriminately butcher animals. If we have a proper understanding of stewardship, we actually eat the leftovers. We don't throw them in the trash can, mm -hmm. right? So a proper understanding of stewardship, we don't clear cut forests and just leave them, leave them uh, be. A proper understanding of stewardship is about caring for something that doesn't belong to you. Yeah. So if we taught an actual proper robust view of stewardship, people would care for the land, the water, the earth, because nobody wants to live in an environment that's all polluted. You see pictures of the Indian slums where the waterways are mm -hmm. packed from one side to the next and five feet deep with plastic bottles and garbage. Like That's not cool, mm -hmm. and it's ungodly. So a proper view of stewardship fixes the the very real environmental, the true environmental issues that we might experience in a broken world. But that aside, the um, the whole notion, this anthropogenic global warning warming narrative, which says that man is the problem, this the cause of of a global warming, is a farce. It's a farce. Mm -hmm. So obviously, again, there's going to be people that do pollute the environment. We know that. I had this neighbor years ago, he would change the oil in his car in the driveway and he'd just dump the oil right on the gravel and it soak oh, into man. the ground. Yeah. And he was like a, a hundred feet from a waterway. So you don't, you don't do stuff like that. That's ridiculous. But um, just to put everybody at ease, first of all, just a couple quick points. The if if you read the literature, the global temperature has gone up by one degree Fahrenheit over the last century. So this is kind of an, another exaggerated narrative. One degree Fahrenheit over 100 years. And in the last 20 years, it's pretty much flattened out. So if you look at the trends, you're going to see warming, cooling cycles, you know, back mm -hmm. for as long as they've recorded temperatures. And we could talk about that quote-unquote science, but that's not the point. The point of the depopulation agenda and the climate change agenda is a, is a mixture of earth worship. It's a new eschatology, which mm -hmm. says we can save ourselves and rescue mm -hmm. ourselves and abide in this world forever without a king, without submission, without repentance, without regeneration. We can make the world last forever in future generations by our own man-centered efforts. Yep. That's a religion. It's mixed with elements from Zen Buddhism. It's mixed with elements of Gaia worship, the earth God. It's again, a salvation by human means. When we read the word of God, we can be guaranteed that the world is not gonna end in an ice age, like I was taught yep. in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. It's not gonna end in an ice age. How do I know that? How do I know it's not gonna end in a meteor strike? How do I know it's not gonna end with, Temperatures going so high, we all fry to death. I, I, I can guarantee you that that's not how the world's going to end. Because in Genesis 8, 22, God says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about it more. That's a very quick response. But we... There's a whole lot. Of, the more you study this climate stuff, you realize there is a spiritual, demonic, humanistic agenda behind the climate change agenda. And what Christians would be foolish to do is to say, no, no, we, we like dumping oil in waterways and we like garbage being thrown around. No, no, we, we should have the cleanest properties. Mm -hmm. We should have, we should be the people that are stewarding our possessions well.
but we don't chew our fingernails down to the flesh and we don't live in fear because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The resources have been given to us by God to steward. What we need to do is bring back a robust theology of stewardship, which is all part of the whole, the broader gospel message that Christ is king, that God is king of kings and Lord of lords. And when we surrender to him, he takes care of all this stuff, right? He, his, the cool thing about the Bible is it doesn't just, we, we don't just, um, like obviously our sin is forgiven through the sacrificial work of Christ and we have the promise of eternal life, but there's also a practicality to scripture. Marriages are bettered when we ground them in the gospel. Families are bettered. Economic systems are better. There's a practical blessing to the world around us when we actually live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. That's a that's a good word. Um, any final things you want to say before we wrap up here? Well, I would just say uh, have more kids. And I'll add to that, have fun trying, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, part of life. Have more kids and have fun trying. Okay. And uh, that's how God has created us. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing a, a baby boom among uh God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians in the decades to come. That's good. Well, that was worth the extra long episode to get that last gem there. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so thank right. you, Aaron, for today. Thank you for the podcast. Uh, for each of our listeners, just want to give a shout out to you. Thank you for tuning in. We are so grateful to meet many of you um, over the past couple of weeks at conferences and whatnot. Yeah, that and, was a uh, huge blessing. We were at the Church at War conference, and it's a huge blessing to meet many people that uh mention they listen to the podcast and that, that's a, that's humbling for us. I know you and I have mm -hmm. talked about it's humbling for us and we, we, we love to be useful in our own little way for the Lord and we're, we, we want you to know that you are loved and you know as brothers and sisters in Christ you are loved by us mm -hmm. and by God and we want to continue to bless you in any small way that we can. So thank you for your encouragement mm -hmm. uh, over the last couple of weeks as well. Awesome. That's good. Real quick reminder, you can hear this podcast uh, on demand from the Fight, Laugh, Feast app, as well as over on Pastor Aaron's personal blog, pursuitofglory.org. And uh, if you've enjoyed today's episode, which of course you all have, you can make sure to share it and uh, pass it along to others so that they're blessed as well. We hope you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.